0: This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company. For more information and links to all our great podcasts, visit hartmanmedia.com.
1: Welcome to the Holistic Survival Show with Jason Hartman. The economic storm brewing around the world is set to spill into all aspects of our lives. Are you prepared? Where are you going to turn for the critical life skills necessary to survive and prosper? The Holistic Survival Show is your family's insurance for a better life. Jason will teach you to think independently, to understand threats, and how to create the ultimate action plan. Sudden change or worst-case scenario, you'll be ready. Welcome to Holistic Survival, your key resource for protecting the people, places, and profits you care about in uncertain times. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, Jason Hartman.
0: It's my pleasure to welcome Brigadier General Robert Spalding to the show. He is uh, retired from the U.S. Air Force, and his book is entitled Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept. General, welcome. How are you? Great. How are you doing? Good, good. It's good to have you on the show. So a lot of talk about this, obviously, starting maybe back significantly at the time of the Trump uh, candidacy, and China has become quite an issue now with the pandemic and the origin being in Wuhan and so forth even more of an issue nowadays. Uh, kind of take us through the premise that America's been asleep at the wheel and uh, and what that is costing us
1: well I um, I came you know, this kind of smacked me in the face in 2014 when I was at the Pentagon. I was uh, advising the chairman of the Joint Chiefs on China had a team. Of China experts, guys that had lived in China, spoke the language, understood the government and the party. I had lived in China for two years. I spoke Chinese. I was an Olmstead scholar, which is a program that the military has. And I'd lived in Shanghai and studied at Tongji University in Shanghai and really traveled the country and and really gotten to know the people and the culture and history, geography, and, uh, you know, spoke the language. So, together, we were working on uh, understanding U.S.-China relations and U.S.-China competition from a strategic perspective. And I had just finished a year at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. And and during that year, I'd met a lot of business folks, uh, a lot of industry people, a lot of financial types. And I had a lot of relationships that I could lean on to um, really begin to understand this relationship from a much more Fuller perspective, a more broad perspective, and uh, one of the issues that that arose during 2014 was a briefing that was sent to me, and I talk about it in the book. And the briefing really was uh, put together by one of the top five accounting firms, and it talked about how it provided vignette after vignette of uh, U.S. companies that had come under attack, uh, what I would call institutional attack from you know the, some of the Chinese intelligence capabilities and and other capabilities for the purpose of taking some kind of intellectual property or asset in the company. And it was at that point that I realized that we had some real issues with regard to understanding that activity going on in the United States that was not presenting itself to the federal government in a way that we had an understanding of the implications to our economy. And that really started me on the path uh, that led to the book uh, Stealth War.
0: Excellent. So, as I mentioned when we started, our audience is very interested in the macroeconomic issues, and particularly how it affects their personal finances uh, and and their investments, uh, namely real estate investments. You know, we've talked a lot about how uh, coming out of the pandemic, we think there will be a mass migration to suburban markets out of high density living areas and all sorts of factors like that, but on the us china level it's interesting i think candidate trump from from 2016 is going to sort of get his entire agenda Stronger borders, jobs back to America. We've seen supply chain disruptions that, when it comes to you know life and death, are very disheartening. You know, we got to make some things in our own country. (laughs) It's it's uh, part of national security. So what's happened in terms of the stealth uh, war, of course. But then, what's next for us? What can we expect?
1: So as I started to dig into this, and as we begin to uh, isolate kind of the industrial base implications. For our relationship with China, uh, we really noticed that a lot of our capabilities that we had in terms of the military were absolutely dependent on the supply chains coming from China. And so we started going through that. And that really is where this whole journey began. And, it, and then, you know, it expanded to understand more of the financial and economic implications of those, of that relationship. Uh, that led into the influence uh, implications of it in terms of our institutions like politics and media and, um, and academia, certainly the corporate sector and Wall Street. And of course, that led to a whole host of um, initiatives in the first year of the Trump administration that really culminates in, an, in a new national security strategy in December of 2017. So, you know, I led this team for two years in the Pentagon. Then I, I go to China to be the defense attache and senior defense official in Beijing. And almost, you know, immediately after the, the, the Trump administration comes into office, I'm pulled into the White House to help – architect the national security strategy and and really the strategy is based on the fundamental premise that openness and globalization the internet is great if everybody agrees to abide by the rules but if you have the number two economy that not only doesn't agree with the rules but actually actively seeks to undermine the institutions that our international order was based on and democratic um Domestic democratic institutions and democracies everywhere, then you have a big problem. And so this belief that openness and globali- globalization and the internet would be, would be you know, able to spread democracy was kind of short circuited by what the Chinese Communist Party did after the Tiananmen massacre. And so if you just look at our foreign policy with regard to China, it was about making them rich so that they would democratize. In other words, if we help them grow economically and with our science and technology, that then they would liberalize politically. And of course, the Chinese saw this was happening, particularly during the Tiananmen massacre and and set about engineering a society that today is more closed than any society and more capable in terms of science and technology of remaining closed and in terms of uh, the economy By essentially taking the innovation, technology, talent, and capital of the West and and really uh, dominating that society. So, after the National Security Strategy came out in December of 2017, really the first quarter of 2018, so somewhere around March, April of 2018, uh, you, you begin to see the Section 301 investigation, you begin to see enforcement by the Department of Justice and the FBI. You, you begin to see the State Department turn a corner and, and you really begin to unlock the enforcement mechanisms of the federal government and the diplom- diplomacy of the federal government to begin to uh, protect U.S. institutions and U.S. companies. We're not there yet, but you know, that's where I think we've been uh, for the last two years. Uh, or almost two years until the coronavirus hit, and I think what the coronavirus has done is essentially solidify not only in the, lo- in the in the minds of those that are in the federal bureaucracy the challenge we face with regard to the Chinese Communist Party, but also in the American people. And I think what you're going to see over the next three to five years is an absolute acceleration of everything that was occurring, you know, in the two years prior.
0: Mm-hmm. you know i'm I'm so glad now that I went to China last year for three weeks with my girlfriend and really got to see i mean it is quite an amazing, especially you mentioned Shanghai Wow, I mean just wow, anybody that goes there has just got to be blown away by the magnitude of progress. And I mean, look at Shenzhen, too, you know, what it was 20 years ago compared to today. I have a friend that lives there and has a manufacturing company there. And it's pretty incredible. But has a lot of that progress come as a result of cheating, you know, not honoring intellectual property, uh, (laughs) whatever, rolling, you know, uh, trampling over people's rights, uh, you know, just any, any sort of it's all anecdotal, of course. But any any comments on that?
1: Well, no, I mean, I think their model is based on this idea that, you know, there's a feigned agreement with the terms of, you know, joining the international order, but a a real active um, disagreement. And, And there's documents like document number nine that I talk about in the book that were internal Chinese Communist Party documents leaked and then translated that describe, you know, liberal democracy, free trade, these these concepts that we Hold to be, you know, true in terms of how nation states should work together, which the Chinese Communist Party feels are absolute threats to its continued survival and this leadership of China, and so it seeks to undermine those things at all times and everywhere, not just in its own country. So um, it really is the need to understand what the Chinese Communist Party is to understand that China is not a democracy; it's not even, uh, you know. People like to say, you know, capitalism, most with Chinese characteristics, but it's, it's not capitalist. It's, it's using the resources of the state to drive economic t- activity in a certain direction for the benefit of the Chinese Communist Party and, and it uses, it undermines the system by essentially being devoid of rules. And, and there's a document that was written in 1999 by two PLA colonels that was translated and it's called unrestricted warfare. Another uh, description of the title is called uh, War Without Rules, and it's really describing how you use the international system to um, essentially undermine a a militarily superior foe, and you use that openness against them. And so what's happened is, you know, the Chinese Communist Party is very capably, um, slowly over the last couple of decades, used their connection to our society and our openness to begin to turn our strengths of openness into vulnerabilities. So things like, you know, our trading system, you know, the, the Chinese don't actually comply with inspection requirements. They don't comply Uh, on the on the financial side with audit requirements. In fact, there's no real law that you can say or rule or regulation or standard that the the Chinese Communist Party forces their um, citizens, and and I would really call them subjects to comply with. And so when you have such blatant and outright um, flaunting of the rules at all levels of the system, and you basically bring that into the order and you never you never enforce the rules. What happens is a system begins to break down. And essentially that's what's been happening. And, and, and you see this at the United Nations. You see it at the World Health Organization, the World Trade Organization. You see it at the World Bank. But now we're also beginning to see it in our own society as companies and, um, and, and financial institutions begin to, you know, essentially align themselves with the Chinese Communist Party because they're incentivized to do so because the Chinese essentially always get their way. And so it really is um, beginning here. And in, in if you just look at Chinese equities, you know, stocks, you know, Chinese companies aren't required uh, to meet audit and transparency requirements. They, they don't have to f- uh, comply with Sarbanes-Oxley like US companies do. So they do they use that to essentially have companies that have really not the value that you would expect them to have to register and list their stocks in our in our capital market. So that's just one example and there's there's literally thousands of others that I could go into that explain, you know, what this is which it's essentially a systematic undermining of the rules-based order by failing to abide by any of the rules and we've been looking the other way. And that's where it says, you know, while the elites were asleep, because we've been looking the other way in anticipation that one day China would change to be more like us. And what we found at the Pentagon is instead of that happening, we were changing to be more like them.
0: Interesting. So when you say the elites were asleep, Do you mean all categories of elites? Or, you know, I totally think it's ridiculous, by the way, uh, and you were alluding to it a moment ago, that we allow these companies to use our capital markets, our stock exchanges, and, you know, we don't charge them some giant fee to access our market, you know, which is sort of like the tariff debate, too. Um, You know, I do think there's a place for a little bit of that. And I'm, you know, I want to think of myself as a libertarian, but. You don't have like an equally yoked system, you know, and uh it would make consumer prices a little higher, but it also give us a lot more jobs, which I think is going to happen anyway with the supply chain issue and the onshoring and the deglobalization trend that I I think will be swinging in that direction as uh, as we come out of this. But uh, so all er- all areas of elites or just the economic ones or. You know, tell us about that.
1: No, it really is all areas. And and, and the Chinese are very prolific in terms of uh, garnering these relationships. They do it in academia. They do it in the political system. They do it in the think tanks in D.C. They do it in the law firms. So they basically begin to create these financial relationships with all of these different sectors of the society. So, you know, rather than, you know, the United States where Joseph and I talked about soft power, it's really the the, the attractiveness of our culture and the engagement of the American people is more on a people to people level, not on a – the Chinese interact at a at an elite level, and it's called elite capture, and and it's really something they do quite well. And so it is literally across all institutions in the United States, because the idea is once you capture the elites of those institutions, then they begin to act in ways that actually you know promote your interests. You know, on the economic side. When you have trade that is one sided, there's supposed to be a countervailing currency trade that tends to equalize that trade over time. The Chinese, because they have a closed financial system, there's no currency trade that actually works as a balancing mechanism for prices to create a leveling of the trade imbalance. So these are some of the things that they have that are, you know, macro challenges that no other country is allowed to have a non-convertible currency yet be fully enmeshed. In the global trading system, yet here the Chinese exist as the number two economy to do that. And that allows them essentially uh, almost the equivalent of a, a, a direct connection to the US blood veins, where they're just. They're pulling out wealth every single year because there's no balancing mechanism just for that for that trade and then trading currency. That's just one example on a macro level how we're being constantly drained, uh, you know, and and there's this belief that we have this free trade system and this led to these low prices because. You know, these things are manufactured in China when in reality you have labor that's exploited. You have pollution that's horrible. You know, having lived there, the air, the land, the the water is all polluted. I mean, it it is really it is really, um, you know, a dystopian future based on this idea that if we just opened up, you know, everything would be better. And, And really, the Chinese Communist Party used that to cement their utter control over the Chinese people and, and to really subjugate them using all of the benefits of being attached to the United States and the West.
0: You know, for the first part of what you just said a moment ago, do we really have Bill Clinton to thank for that bad deal? It seems like it's a, it could sort of rest on Bill Clinton's shoulders mostly, but every president has, in, until this one, I think has kind of sold us out.
1: <laughs> well, no, I think it was also the Republicans. I mean, look, this is a bipartisan issue.
0: And the Bushes too, you know. I'm not. I'm not saying that. But but Clinton was the one that really opened it up. Nixon pioneered it. I mean, if you want to go back further, you know, Nixon sort of opened it up. But but Clinton really really opened up the trade, and that was, um, you know. But a lot of cheap goods flowed in here, and you know, you like it when you go to the store, so. I don't know.
1: Well, I mean, I think for us uh, in the Pentagon in 2014 and 2016, uh, and really for me today, it it has been a a journey of discovery. I think um, there's been a lot of uh, culpability on both sides of the aisle. In fact, when I was at the White House, we got in this big argument right in 2017, and I describe it in the book. Uh, and I just said, I just got up and said, look, you know, we're all culpable in some way. Uh, you know, that's that's really irrelevant at this point. We have to figure out how we get out of this. How do we how do we make it right for the American people, and really how do we pre- preserve our republic? And so, the book is really talking about what we need to do to do that. And and a lot of those things you're you're seeing m- making tariffs permanent against China preventing them from using our capital markets, preventing U.S. corporations from investing in China because there is a a strict capital controls and they can't bring those profits out, yet they're reporting them to the markets. So there's a lot of things that we allow to be done that ought to be changed. And I think when you do that, you'll stop seeing, you know, the wholesale loss of innovation, technology, talent and capital to China. It'll really start to flow into the United States back into rebuilding our country and our productivity and our, and our wealth.
0: Yeah, good thoughts. Let's wrap it up. But I just I do want to. I'd be remiss if I didn't just touch on one more subject. I mean, you're you're a military general, and I, I just got to ask you: Should we be how concerned should we be about China's military plans? That's obviously a giant subject. But I think a comment on that. You know, the you, you talk about modern warfare 5.0 and 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 5G uh, it's a lot to go into. But just any comments you have on kind of the military angle.
1: Yeah. So I'll just talk about national security in general. So we tend to think of planes and ships and tanks and bombs and bullets. And what the so what of the book is that national security today in a globalized internet connected world involves ones and zeros and dollars and cents. It's really about economics, finance and information and the ability of using the tools that Silicon Valley gave us uh, both the technology and the business models to influence populations at the individual level. Now, in terms of military power itself, The Chinese Communist Party has really built a very formidable uh, military on the basis of intermediate range ballistic and cruise missiles. And so that's something that we're going to have to counter in the region. And that's why the administration pulled out of the uh, Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, because we need to build conventional intermediate range ballistic and cruise missiles to counter that but that's more of a deterrent you know the military should be used as a deterrent we should be focusing on the economic and science and technology power of the united states that's where we de- uh, de- derive wow. our national security power is really the strength of the economy and our science and technology and i think we lost sight of that We that's how what carried us uh, through the Cold War. That's what we've always relied on is the strength of our economy and our and in our um, technology base. And we've gotten away from that and we really need to return.
0: Yeah, good points. Give out your website and tell people where they can find out more. Obviously, the book is available in all the usual places, which, by the way, it has excellent reviews and many reviews.
1: Yeah, generalspaulding.com. There's no U in Spaulding. And then you can follow me on Twitter at Robert underscore Spaulding.
0: Excellent. General Spaulding, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much.